Would you pray with me? Lord, would you help us this morning to open our eyes to see the truth of your word and just who this word is that was with God and was God. This word that was there in the beginning and has come to dwell among us. Would you help us this morning to see who Jesus is? We need your help to do it. We can't see on our own. We pray that your spirit would give us eyes to be able to see the beauty of Jesus, to adore the wonder of his majesty, and to follow with the claim that he has on our life. Lord, we need your grace to do it. We pray that you would give us that now. We pray in his name. Amen. A couple of years into Jesus' public ministry, and there was a theological debate happening amongst the Jewish people. They were hotly debating who the Messiah was. Maybe he's already come. And if so, who was he? Jesus looks at his disciples and kind of pokes the bear a little bit and says, hey, who do people say the Messiah is? The disciples tell him, well, I mean, there's the chatter. People say, maybe it's John the Baptist. He did crazy stuff with locusts and honey and lived in wilderness. Uh, Maybe it was him. Uh, Maybe it was Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Maybe it was Elijah. He did a lot of great stuff. This was the debate. Jesus then cuts through all of that and looks at them and asks them this question. Well, who do you say that I am? The Matthew 16, verse 14. Oh, friends, there may be no more important question in the world for every human to answer than that question. Who do you say that he is? Our answer to that determines potentially our entire eternal future. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian, um, but perhaps Jesus has just been relegated to an hour and a half time slot on your already busy weekend. You can see if you pencil him in. And maybe you would answer and say he's become more of a divine butler that you go to only whenever you really need something or something in your life that's off, something that you want, something that you need, something that's not going as you had hoped, and so you go to him then. All right, Lord, it's that time again. I need, I need your help. And maybe he's someone that you're trying to bump up your priority list. You've got a thousand things going on in life. You know that Jesus needs to be a higher priority. Oh, there's just so much happening. You know he's there. You want him to move up. He's just, he's there somewhere in the middle of the pack. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. The same question is posed to you. How would you answer that? Maybe you would say, I mean, maybe he's a good teacher. He taught some, some true things. It's helpful for our world to be able to hear and know. Maybe he's an ethicist. He was a good ethical teacher. Taught us good principles to live by. And maybe you'd say that he's a moral example that we should try to emulate. One of the many people we can have as influences in our life, positive influences. Or maybe you'd even say he was a prophet. It's when you talk the, the whole talk about being God where things get a little difficult. But friends, no matter how you may answer that question, Our text this morning in Colossians 1 will give us a chance to see how God has answered it. Who is Jesus? One commentator put it this way, talking about Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He said that these verses are the most closely reasoned presentation of the supremacy of Christ anywhere in the Bible. Right? I read that and I'm like, great. And I've got to preach that. 
It feels like a wedding where it's like all I can say is only make things worse, it feels like. That's what, what it seems like. People are not there to listen to me. It feels like we should almost just read the text and I go sit down. But friends, but what we'll see here, again, is the beauty of the description and so densely packed the description of who Jesus is, all closely and reasoned together. Uh, people believe in your Bibles, if you see it's kind of offset, uh, most commentators believe that this was originated either from a hymn that the early church sang or maybe a creed that they confessed would use in worship. And re regardless, though, even if these words didn't originate from worship, friends, they should result in worship. As we look and see who Jesus is, that's the real application. As we leave amazed at who he is. And so as we walk through our text this morning, Colossians 1 verses 15 through 23, we're continuing our study through the book of Colossians. I want us to ask three questions. First, uh, question, who is he? We'll see this in verses 15 to 18. Second, what did he do? We'll see this in verses 19 and 20. And third, what does it mean for you? Verses 21 through 23. Who is he? What did he do? And what does it mean for you? First, verses 15 to 18. Who is he? And Paul writes this to the church in Colossae. He says that he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Who is he? Do you hear that repetition throughout he is, he is, he is. Paul is wanting to write to this church to help them understand the identity of Jesus. And he begins by showing that first, who is he? Well, he is the image of God. We see this in the first part of verse 15. Look again, he just, that's what he says, leading off. He is the image of the invisible God. Now we gotta be careful here. We'll have to do this a few times throughout. The, the word that we have in English may bring a different picture in our mind than what Paul's trying to communicate. So we may hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and think, oh, well, he's just a picture. And a picture is lesser than the actual thing. So, so he is just a, a representation, a picture, an image of the invisible God. That's not what Paul means to say here. And Paul is saying that he is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word there is icon. It's where we get the English word icon. He's writing that they are, the, this word, this understanding is not just a physical representation of, it is a manifestation of the person. That, that Jesus manifests all that God is. He is the represent, uh, representation of him. Not simply in a physical form, but even in dwelling. He is the manifestation of God. Right, John 1 verse 18 puts it this way. No one has ever seen God, right? The invisible God. The one and only Son, though, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. This is what it means that he is the image. Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it this way, that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. S-O-N, the Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. And perhaps my favorite, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, puts it this way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory 
in the face of Jesus Christ. We see throughout the Bible that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact expression of his nature. He has revealed who the Father is. And all of the light of the knowledge of God's glory is seen in his face. If you want to know what the Father looks like, just look at Jesus. He is the exegesis of God. The revelation of God. He is the Word revealed to us as we see him. If you want to know what God would do in a situation, look at what Jesus did. If you want to know what God does at a funeral, look at John 11. If you want to know what God does around those who have been oppressed, look throughout the situation in the Gospels as Jesus is filled with compassion. If you want to know what God does when he's around those who are broken, look at what Jesus does. And we see the impulse of the Father there in the life of the Son. He is the exact expression of his nature. My father passed away 11 years ago now. And every now and then I run into people when I go back home who knew him when he was younger and I hadn't met. And I hear this a lot from them. They would look at me and they would go, man, you look just like your father. I didn't know my dad in his 20s, in his 30s. But when they look at me, they go, when he was younger, he he looked just like you. He looked just like your father. And friends, we can be confident that his angels were there watching Jesus in his earthly ministry. As they craned to look, as Jesus would welcome children, as he taught the scriptures, as he healed the leper, as he raised the dead, as he forgave the very people who killed him, those angels who knew God from eternity past could look at this Jesus, and they could say, wow, he looks just like his father. He is his exact expression. He's the spitting image, the image of the invisible God. Because not only is he the image of God, but he is also, and this is where Paul's going to spend a good bit of time here, that Jesus is the creator of all. He's the creator of all. We see this in the second half of 15, all the way through 17. Right, it begins with this little phrase here in 15 that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now this sets up what Paul's getting into. Now there's some, again, we've got to do a little bit of work here. Because if we take that phrase, pull it out by itself and look at it and go, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Oh, well he then was created. He's the firstborn. That means he was the first of all the rest of creation. And, and if you were to do that, we would not be the first to do this. And the fourth century, there was someone named Arius who began to take this text out of context, another one in another place in scripture as well, and say, well, because Jesus was firstborn, it means he was created. He was not in fact God. He's the highest of all created beings, but he was created. And this began to spark a controversy within the church, so much so that the church had to come together and say, what does the Bible teach? And they got together in the city called Nicaea and said, this is what the scriptures teach about who Jesus is. And it's the Nicene Creed that we read just a couple weeks ago here in church, explaining that Jesus is begotten, but he's not made. He is not a created being. He is God. He is of the same substance, the same stuff. The word that they were using uh, in this controversy is that Jesus is homoousios, homoousion, the same substance. Those on the other side were saying, well, maybe Jesus is like God. He is similar to God. And people held up the Bibles to go, no, no, he is God. 
There's, a, there's a, a bit of a rumor, I like to think that it's true, that one of the people that was very passionate about this debate has um, now been, um, become a saint in the, uh, in the Catholic Church, um, St. Nicholas, old St. Nick. There's a number of things that he did, including be able to care for one family who was poor, to be able to sneak into their house at night to give them uh, presents for a father who wouldn't be able to provide on his own, and then thus then continue then the, or the or origin story of St. Nick. But you know what else St. Nick did? He was involved in the Council of Nicaea, and he loved the scriptures. And as he heard Arius begin to say that Jesus is not God, the rumor is that he gets up, walks across the room, and punches Arius in the face. So perhaps the song is true and you better watch out. <laughs> this is how people will take it out and mistreat it. But for instance, this wasn't just a fourth century issue. This is the same thing that's taught in Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon church that Jesus has created. He's the firstborn, but he is created. Friends, that's, that's not what the scriptures teach. Again, if you take the sentence out and hold it up, you can get there. But listen, we say this um, often, a text out of the context is a pretext for a proof text. So if you take this text, rip it out of its context, then you have set the stage for you to be able to make it say whatever you want. This is what we can do with the Bible. What we've got to do, the three most important things in Bible translation, first is context. The second thing is context. The third thing is context. We've got to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. We can't rip it out and make it say whatever it is that we want. When it says firstborn here, what we see in other places in Scripture is it doesn't simply mean first uh, in, uh, in, um, in order, sequential order. But it also means first in honor or in rank. First in honor or in rank. We see this uh, in a number of places. One in Psalm 89 when God is describing David as the firstborn of all kings. David was not the first king that was born in the world or even in Israel. What he means is he will hold the highest rank and honor of the kings. He's the firstborn. And that's the sense in which we see here that Jesus is the firstborn in rank and in order. And how do we know that? Because that's what Paul's going to say for the next two verses to help explain it. Jesus is the Lord of creation. Look at verse 16. For, again, Paul's connecting now what he's just said to this. The firstborn over all creation. Why? Because everything was created by him. So Jesus is not the created being. He is the creator. Everything was created by him. Everything, all things, all things great and small, the smallest blade of grass and the furthest galaxy away, spoken into existence by the Word, by Jesus Christ. All things were created by Him. He's the originating source of all creation. He created the physical world, right? We see this here in the text. Things on earth and things visible. That's what he's describing. All of the physical world. So who flung the stars in their place? Who scooped out the depths of the ocean? Who stacked mountains to stretch into the sky? Who made you and me? Well, friend, Paul says here, if you check the label of everything in creation, it would all read, made by Christ. He's the creator of all the physical world. But not only that, he's also the creator of the spiritual world, right? This is what he's talking about with the things in heaven and the things invisible, He's going to further describe this right after his thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. He's talking about the spiritual world here, all the, the angelic beings, both angels and those who have fallen and now serve Satan and his wicked schemes, demons. All of them were created by Jesus. 
Now, this is a similar language Paul's going to use later in chapter 2, uh, verse 15, whenever, whenever he says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. He's talking about the spiritual world. Listen, there's no need to try and separate what each of these mean or distinguish the difference between them. The point is, is whatever they are, Jesus made all of them. That's the point. And the other thing is that then Jesus has dominion and authority over them. And so there's tons of movies and tons of debate, lots of discussion over the dangers of the spiritual world. And we need to do a good job of acknowledging the reality of the spiritual world. But friends, in Christ, there's nothing to fear. This is not a battle of good and evil, and we're hoping that our side is stronger. Jesus created them all. He stands in authority and power over them. That's why we can sing this hymn written by Martin Luther, the great reformer. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. What will it take for the enemy to fall? One word from his creator. He is the creator over this creation. He is the creative agent of all creation. Not only was he the originating source of all creation, things were created by him, but you see there's another preposition used there at the end of 16, that all things have been created through him. He is the creative agent of everything. Not only did he just step back and go, in me is the power to create, but he was the active element, the one who was creating, the active agent who was creating. He is an involved creator. Through him, all things have been made. Not only is he the creative agent, but he's also the intended recipient of all creation. You see the last preposition there? All things have been created through him and for him. By him, through him, and for him. We see this threefold relationship that Jesus has with his creation. All of creation was meant for him. Every star sings his name. Every sunset declares his glory. Every blade of grass witnesses to his power. Every mountain shouts his majesty. And every spiritual being knows their authority. Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He is the creator of all. Paul's going to continue here in this argument. Not only has he created all things by him, through him, and for him, but verse 17, he is also before all things. He is the one who began all things. Before anything else was, he is. He's the beginning, right? There's a a television show where the villain at the very end is revealed and the villain is known as he who remains because he defeated all the other great threats that were out there and he was the one who remained. He was the one with the greatest power. What Paul is saying is the greatest power is not he who remains, but he who begins. He was before all things. He was the one there at the beginning, the originator. He was the creator of all. But not only is Jesus the creator of all things, he's also the sustainer of all things. Look there at 17, not only is he before all things, but also by him, all things hold together. Every galaxy, every planet, every structure of land, every cell coheres by the sustaining word of Jesus. He is actively sustaining and holding together everything he has made. He brought cosmos out of chaos. He's the one that holds it together. All of it through his word. 
He's still involved. He hasn't just stepped back, created the world and spun it and let it go and go, okay, well, I hope this works out. He is still involved holding it together. And friends, what we see is that kind of power, that kind of glory, that kind of authority not only holds worlds together, but friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, it also holds you together. The very same hand that's holding worlds is holding you. God didn't just back off of your life and go, all right, I've saved him. Hope he does okay. Hope she's all right. He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion until the day of the Lord. Jesus finishes everything that he starts. He completes every work that he begins. And he is holding you in his hand. And what he says in John 6 is there is no one, not the enemy, not no, not, not no one. That's what we said growing up. There's not no one who's taken you out of his hand. Amen. Not only that, but there is nothing that you can do to pry yourself away from his love. If you are truly in Christ, friend, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in him. Nothing. J.I. Packer puts it this way. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. Because you are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. Friends, He is holding on to you. He is the head and the Lord of all creation. But not only that, we get the final point uh, here for who He is in verse 18. That He is the head of the church. Paul now shifts from a cosmological picture to a soteriological picture. The God of the cosmos is also the God of the church. The God of creation is now we see the God of a new creation here in this church. That he is also the head of the body. Paul describes that image as being the church. This is one of the metaphors used for what a church is. It is a body made up with different members, different parts. That's why we have church membership. You're not a part of a club, an organization. You're a part of a body. A member of a body, each different, each unique, each designed by God as he's arranging this church. But there's one body part that none of us will ever be, and that's the head, because it's reserved for Christ. And we can live without our fingers, we can live without our toes, we can live without our elbows, we can certainly live without our appendix. But you know what we cannot live without? Our head. We need our head as he is the head of our body. He is the head of the church. What gives him the right then to be the head? Well, Paul says that he's the beginning. He's the beginning. He is the founder. He is the arche, is the, the Greek there. He is the founder of this church, the founder of this community. On the rock of his claim that he is the Messiah, this church is built. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the beginning. He's the originator, the author of salvation. He's the founder. Not only is he the founder, but he is also the firstborn from the dead. Again, as we talked about this word firstborn, it can either mean first in sequential order or first in honor and rank. I think here what Paul's saying is that sense in which it's the first in order, that he's the firstborn of the dead. And you may go, Caleb, I've read some of the Bible before though. Jesus was not the first person to be raised from the dead. So how could it be the firstborn? Well, he was the first to be raised from the dead that didn't ever die again. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus was dead for three days. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus came stumbling out of his tomb. I would have loved to have been there at that scene. 
One commentator put it this way, that had Jesus not put Lazarus' name in front of that, the whole world would have emptied its tombs. That's the the power that Jesus has. Lazarus come out. And Lazarus came back from the dead. But listen, Lazarus had another funeral later in his life. All those who were raised died again. But Jesus, whenever he was raised, he walked out of his grave and it's still empty. Lee and I had the chance to go to Israel four years ago now. And you get to see all the sites and you know, there's all sorts of, well, Jesus may have done this here, uh, so buy this. Or he may have done this here, so be sure you buy this. It's a, great, it's a terrible commercialization of where Jesus walked. It's equally infuriating and helpful all at the same time. <laughs> and there's a place they believe maybe is the garden tomb. Perhaps it is, but if nothing else, it gives us an image of what it was like. To be able to see a stone that was rolled back, walking into this room that was carved in the side of a tomb. And friends, we got to see a lot of incredible things over there while we were in Israel. But the most incredible thing didn't have anything inside of it. Because he's the firstborn from the dead. And the implication that Paul's saying here is that he's the first in order, meaning that there will be more that follow. That for all those in Christ, that we will also, even if we die, we'll be raised. That while when we die, our spirit will go to be with the Lord. Our soul will be with him, absent from the body, but present with the Lord. But there is a day coming when Jesus returns and he will call forth from the grave all those in him. And bodily, we will be resurrected, reunited with our souls, and live in a glorified, resurrected body for all of eternity. How in the world could we believe that? Because there's somebody that's already done it. And friends, this is the linchpin of the faith. Everything rises and falls on this claim that he's the firstborn from the dead. I think it's part of what Paul has this in here. He has the right to be the beginning and the head of the church because he is the one that's creating it through his resurrecting life. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, there, there, I'm sure there's questions you have, claims about Jesus, the reliability of the Bible, maybe ethical questions of, of, of worldview and ideology. Those are all good questions to ask. But let me just tell you, this is the question to start with. Did Jesus die and come back from the dead? Because if he, in fact, resurrected, then friends, there will be part of what he says that we may not like. But guess what? He's the king. We should expect that there will be things that we don't like. If we go to Jesus and he agrees with all of us, he is not God, we are. We are misreading who Jesus is. We should expect that God, our creator, will sometimes rub up against part of who we are or the culture in which we live because he is transcendent. He is totally other than us. And how do we know that we should listen to him? Because we need to investigate whether or not he is in fact the firstborn from the dead. This is the hope that we have. That even the one enemy that we all face that we cannot overcome. I was watching a television show uh, last night. And there was a line in there that said, Son, death is the one thing that can't be undone. Oh friends, that's just not true. Jesus has in fact undone that. And he walked out of his grave and all those in him will one day do the same because he is the first in the order. He is the firstborn from the dead. And what that produces then is that he then becomes first place in everything. Right? This is what we see here in verse 18. So that all of this has happened so that Jesus might come to have first place in everything. Or your translations may say that he might be preeminent in everything. It's important, again, as we see who Jesus is, the image of God, 
the creator of all, the head of the church, that he then, the conclusion of those things, that he then becomes preeminent, first place in all things. And so maybe you're here and you're going, gosh, I, okay, here's, I need to think about my life. You think about my priority list. Let me set it down, get a piece of paper, write it out. Okay, God is first. Jesus is first. And then a family, and church, vocation, working out, oh, eating out. I'll slip those maybe. <laughs> We're going to work through our priority list. Maybe you're going, oh, okay, now, Jesus has bumped down a little bit, but let me, I'm going to walk out of here because Jesus is who he said he is. He's going back to number one. I'm walking back out of here. He's number one again. But friends, let me just tell you, the way the Bible describes Jesus in our life is not that he is a slot in our priority list. He is the paper that we're writing it on. So that he is first place, not just in an order of things, he's first place in everything. So that in our marriage, he has first place. In our parenting, he has first place. In our vocation, he has first place. In our friendships, he has first place. In our money, he has first place. In everything, he has first place. He is preeminent. He is the one that informs everything. He is the lens in which we interact with this world because we are following him. He is the preeminent Christ. That is who he is. This is what Paul's been working towards all through this so far. Now he's going to shift. And this is who he is. Again, you heard it all throughout. He is, he is, he is, he is, he is. Now in verse 19, he's going to shift. And we see here he says four. He's going to begin to answer the question, what then has this preeminent one done? Four, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What did Jesus do? Well, the first thing we see in verse 19 is that he became man. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All the radiance and the glory of God then dwelling within Christ the Son when he came to walk among us. And what we see is that he is of the same stuff, the same substance of God. So that he is truly God and truly man. He did not leave one or the other whenever he came and walked this world. He was both. He is both. He became man. And maybe you hear that and you go, okay, well, that's just like a sudden turn that doesn't have anything to do with what he's just said. He's been talking about all this huge and lofty stuff, and then it's Christmas. What are we doing? Surely Paul would want to sing Christmas songs throughout the year. I understand. But why does he shift here in verse 19 to the incarnation, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him? Well, friends, I don't think it's a random thought, because Paul's about to go into the work that Jesus did in reconciling all things to himself. And how could Jesus reconcile a sinful people to himself? What we see throughout the Bible is that what is needed to be able to act as a reconciler, as a mediator between us and God, is someone who is like us. In the Old Testament, it was a high priest. Whenever we went through Exodus last year, the high priest had to come from among them. Well, how then could we have a person that could come from among us that could act as a perfect sacrifice for us? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are passing those qualifications. 
the only person who could step in to act as a reconciling mediator between us and God is God himself. And friends, that's exactly what he did on that first Christmas. He became man. Then he lived a life of perfect obedience. And whenever he walked forward on the cross and died in our place, he then stood as a substitute, as a mediator, as one of us, truly man, and took on himself the punishment that was meant for our sins. All the wrath and the just punishment from God for my rebellion was placed on Christ instead. And then he offers his righteousness, his perfect obedience to us. He is the one who not only is willing to help, he's the one who is able to help. And it needed to be both. Back in January, uh, we were uh, home in Mississippi for Christmas, and Leah was driving her van, and then all of a sudden, all the lights start going off, like the Disney fireworks show on the dashboard. She gets concerned, pulls over, goes and takes it into a shop, and they look at it and go, oh, well, the alternator's on the fritz. You need a new alternator. Wonderful. It's like the day after Christmas. Everywhere is closed. We're getting ready to drive back to Florida. It's like a worst case scenario. Like the, the mechanic shops were closed that day, but even if we were getting in touch with them, how long would we have to wait? So the conclusion came, I had to change the alternator. <laughs> now, in that moment, I could have called Garrett Wood to come and help me. And what I promise you, Garrett would have been willing to help. But an important qualification is that he would not have been able to help. (laughs) He knows as much about cars as I do. But we needed someone else to step in who knew how the thing worked. Enter MacGyver, a.k.a. my father-in-law. He steps in, shows what's going on, gets a YouTube video for us to be able to watch. He's sitting there helping us as me and my brother-in-law are taking out the old alternator, putting in the new one, uh, and he's there walking us through it to make sure that we're actually doing the right thing. And my father-in-law was not only willing, but he was also able. He was the right man for the job. Garrett, my closest friend, would have been the wrong man for the job. (laughs) Friends, what Paul is showing us here in Colossians 1 is that in Christ we have the glory and the power of the Creator. And all of that fullness is then pleased to dwell in a man. And as he lived his life here on earth, living perfectly here in earth in our place, and then dying a substitutionary death in our place there on the cross, that Jesus was not only willing, but he was also able. That he was, in the truest sense, the right man for the job. Again, another from the same hymn, Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. He put it this way. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. It's like me and Garrett trying to change the alternator. We could try all we want, but our striving would be losing and the van would explode. (laughs) We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Friends, this Christ, the preeminent one, The powerful one, the creating one, the risen one, the reigning one is the right man for the job. And he is on our side, the man of God's own choosing, where all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So that now, as the one who is truly God, he could obey the law perfectly. And as truly man, he could step in and die as our substitute to redeem and reconcile all things back to himself. He is the right man. 
What, he, what has he done? He became man to be able to reconcile everything. Now this is verse 20. He reconciled everything. This is what he's done. Through him to reconcile everything to himself. What I want to do just quickly is just give four brief reflections here on what it means that Jesus has reconciled. What this reconciliation is. First, we see reconciliation is a work of God. Look at who's the one doing the reconciling here in the text. It was brought through him to reconcile everything to himself. God is the one who reconciled. He is the initiator. He is the one who has done it. It is a work of God. We see this all over the place. Ephesians 2.16, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 20, Romans 5. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. You hear that word? Received. We did not attribute. We did not contribute. We did not add to. We did not help. We did not aid. We received the reconciliation because reconciliation is a work of God that he accomplishes through the cross. Not only is reconciliation a work of God, but we also see, friends, it's already been accomplished. It's not up in the air. It's not yet to be determined. Again, it is in the past tense. While we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God. The song we sang earlier, it was finished upon the cross. It's in the past tense for a reason. Because it's done. The reconciliation has been accomplished. And it's done in the past. It is not up in the air. You do not have to wonder every time you stumble, every time you fall, every time you turn away from God, go, oh, has he changed his mind? For the reconciliation has been accomplished. And where was it accomplished? It was accomplished through the cross. That reconciliation was accomplished through the cross. Right? He came to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It was there, Jesus, as our substitute, took our sin, giving us his righteousness to be able to create peace again with God, to reconcile us back to God again. That is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This exchange. All those who trust in Jesus, our sin is given to him and he dies in our place taking our punishment. And his life, his righteousness, his obedience is given to us. That's where the reconciliation was accomplished, there through his blood shed on the cross. And fourth, reconciliation involves everything. When we think reconciliation, I think our first thought goes that personal relationship with God. We've been reconciled to him. And that's true. But look at the text. Jesus came to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on heaven or things in, on earth. That Jesus is reconciling not just his new creation, but also the entire creation. All the cosmos is being redeemed and reconciled back to God. Why? Because it was also affected by our sin. As we see all the way back in Genesis 3. And the curse of the fall didn't just fall on the serpent and the woman and the man, but also we see in Genesis 3.17, the ground is cursed because of you. 
It's producing thorns and thistles. There's a curse that's now infected creation. Paul says later in Romans 8 that creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. Because creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Paul is saying there is a curse that's fallen on this world. And all of creation is groaning, waiting for the day for Jesus to return and for that curse to be lifted. For all of creation to be reconciled back to its creator. This is the hope and what creation is looking forward to. So every earthquake, every hurricane, every natural disaster, we see the groaning creation longing for that day when Jesus will come again. There's a song that we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World. It's not actually about Christmas, it's about Jesus' second coming, but I digress. What do we sing? No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. But he's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. When Jesus comes again, he will come to reconcile everything to himself. You see part of this power even in his miracles when he was here. And Jesus is on a boat tossed by the wind and the waves. I remember a couple years ago, there was an awful storm that popped out of nowhere here in Claremont. And there were videos of the boats trying to get in the boat dock. I don't know if you all remember this. It looked awful. Tons of damage done to these boats. I mean, they're getting tossed back and forth. So then I imagine 2,000 years ago in like a little wooden freight that some fishermen put together out on the Sea of Galilee and there's this huge storm. I understand why they were terrified and thought they were going to die. And what does Jesus do? He walks up and he speaks. And those winds and those waves, they recognize his voice. They'd heard it before when they were made. And they knew the authority that he had. And they obeyed. And they were still. And they were calm. And there is a day when Jesus returns and he will reconcile again everything to himself. This is what he has done. And finally, the third question, what does it mean for you? Verses 21 through 23. Well, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. What does this mean for you? Well, first, it reminds us what we were by our actions. Verse 21 we were alienated. We were hostile. This was expressed in our evil actions, in our sin, our rebellion against God. This is who we were. This is who everyone is in their own. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But then we get three of the best letters in the Bible there in verse 22. B-U-T, but. While this is who we were by our actions, Paul reminds us what we are now by his grace. While we were far off, while we were alienated and hostile, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to be able to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So this is once who you were. The Bible is incredibly honest about this. But friends, it also then tells us who we are in Christ. 
And this is what the gospel does. The truth of the gospel is it tells us, guys, you are a lot worse than you could have ever dreamed. But also that you are far more loved and accepted than you could have ever imagined. This is what the gospel does in bringing us in and creating and presenting us then positionally before God as holy and faultless and blameless before Him. Not because then we are saved and we go out and go, okay, now I'm going to never sin again, walk into heaven and be like, God, look at all that I've done. Now, there's nothing in our hands that we cling, that we bring. It's simply to the cross that we cling. We are holy and blameless and faultless, not by a self-righteousness, but by another righteousness that has been given to us. And we stand perfectly accepted and redeemed and reconciled, not by what we have done, but what Christ has done for us as our great reconciler and giving us His holiness, His faultlessness, and His blamelessness before Him. So whenever we go before him, friends, there's any part of us that walks in with a swagger, we have misunderstood the Bible. We walk in grateful, knowing that there's nothing that we bring to the cross except the sin that has made it necessary. But Jesus in his grace saves us, reconciles us, and gives us his perfect record. And you may say, well, Caleb, that's not me. I know that I'm not perfect. And this is our walk then. This is the race that we're running. This is why Paul is writing that we would walk worthy. And how do we know if this is even real? Verse 23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. A true faith is a faith that lasts. Doesn't mean there won't be ups and downs. Doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of doubt, maybe even walking away. What it means, though, is that for all those who have truly trusted in Jesus, he will see you through to the end, and it will persevere and last to the end. And this is what we see in how it lasts for real. Because Jesus, while we are positionally perfect before him, there is still the rest of our life that we have to fight and battle sin. And really, this walk and this race is the process of becoming who we already are. Now, I remember in January 12th, 2013, Starkville, Mississippi, I watched my wife walk down the aisle and we said, I do, and we were married. On that day, I became a husband in a moment. But you know what else I was doing just weeks before? I was packing up my room, which consisted of a futon, a flag, which I thought would look great, thumbtacked on my ceiling, (laughs) because of course it would. Dinner frequently at Taco Bell. And in that moment on January 12, 2013, all of that didn't suddenly change and was gone. But I was still declared and was a husband in that moment. And now the rest of my life and my marriage to Leah is the process of becoming who I already am to her. We don't longer have any flags on our ceiling. Taco Bell, though, I have won her over. Taco Bell is wonderful. And this is what Paul is saying. You are faultless and blameless and righteous before the Lord. That's your positional standing. Now go and become who you already are. Walk worthy of the gospel. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And how do we run? The author of Hebrews tells us. By keeping our eyes on Jesus. Friends, that's the greatest effort you can put in this life all of your effort into seeing him and looking to him. 
reminded both of his supremacy and his sufficiency. Seeing the glory of who he is and the wonder of what he's done for you. Keep your eyes on him. That's how we make it to the end. And so we asked the question we started with. As Jesus looks at us and says, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Friends, we see that he is the all-supreme creator and all-sufficient savior. The loving Lord, sovereign substitute, risen redeemer and conquering king. That's who he is. He is full of grace and truth. The friend of sinners, the lion of Judah and the lamb of God. That's who he is. He is the great I am, the root of Jesse, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. That's who he is. He is the fullness of the Father, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact expression of his nature. That's who he is. He is the universe-creating, world-sustaining, serpent-crushing, death-conquering, sin-trampling, life-giving, peace-promising, forgiveness-offering, joy-extending, shame-erasing, guilt-canceling, chain-breaking, grave-emptying, miracle-working Messiah. That is who He is. Who do you say that He is? Oh, may God give us the grace to answer like Peter did. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And may He also give us the grace to keep our eyes on Him as we strive to walk worthy of this gospel. Let's pray.